Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys. Section 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys. A Midsummer Ramble in the Dolomites. By Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 3. Longarone de Cortina. Part 2. Two great mounds of shattered limestone, each at least one hundred feet in height, mark the site of the lost villages, and strange to tell the torrent, instead of being dammed and driven back as at Saraval, flows on its way unimpeded save by a few titanic boulders. How so tremendous a fall could have crossed the stream in sufficient volume to bury every house, church, and campanile on the other side, and yet have failed to fill up the bed of the intervening torrent, is infinitely mysterious. I inquired then, and later, whether the stream might not have been temporarily choked, and afterwards cleared by the labor of the other Ampesan communities. But though all whom I asked seemed to think such a task impossible of fulfillment at any time, none could answer me. It happened, Signora, fifty-six years ago, was the invariable answer. Chilosa. Was that so long a time? It seemed strange that after the lapse of little more than half a century, every detail of so terrible a catastrophe should be forgotten in a place where events were necessarily few. And now, following the great sweep of the road, we make at least one-third of the circuit of the Antileo, which becomes momentarily grander and changes its aspect and outline with every turn. The snow on this side finds no resting place, save on a scant ledge here and there, and the mountain consists apparently of innumerable jagged buttresses, huge slopes of shaly debris, and an infinitely varied chain of pallid peaks and pinnacles. Some of these are almost white, some of a pale, sulphurous yellow streaked with violet, some splashed with a vivid, rusty red, indicating the presence of iron. One keen, splintered anguille, sharp as a lance and curved as a shark's tooth, looked like a scimitar freshly dipped in blood. Now, at San Vito, the Antelao begins to be left behind, and the long ridge of the Croda Malcora, with its highest peak, Sorapis, standing boldly out against a background of storm-cloud, enters on the scene. A little farther yet, and the Austrian frontier is reached. A striped pole, alternately black and yellow, like a leg of one of the Pope's guard, bestride the road in front of a dilapidated little custom-house. Here some three or four ragged-looking Austrian soldiers are playing at bowls, while a couple of officers lounging in a bench outside the door smoke their cigarettes and watch the game. One of these, very tall, very shabby, very dirty, with a glass screwed into his eye and a moustache about eighteen inches in length, saunters up to the carriage door. Being assured, however, that we carry nothing contraband, he lifts his cap with an indescribable air of fashionable languor, and bids the coachman drive on. From this point, the invisible political line being passed, one observes an immediate change, not only in the costumes, but in the build and features of the people. They are a taller, fairer, finer race. The men wear rude capes of undressed skins. The women, no longer bare-legged, no longer coiffured with red and yellow handkerchiefs, 
wear a kind of Bernese dress consisting of a black petticoat, a black cloth bodice like a tightly fitting waistcoat, white linen undersleeves reaching to the elbow, a large blue apron, and a round felt hat like a man's. By this time the Pelmo is out of sight, the Rochetta is left behind, Sorapis is passed, and still new mountains rise against the horizon. To the left, a continuation, indeed, of the Rochetta, the Bec di Mazzotti and the ridge of Boccolungo stand out like a row of jagged teeth. On a line with these, but at least a mile farther up the valley, the huge bulk of the Tofana looms up in sullen majesty, headed by a magnificent precipice, like a pyramid of red granite while to the right Monte Cristallo, a stupendous chevaux de frise of grey and orange pinnacles, forms a grand background to the clustered roofs, lofty campanile, and green pasturages of Cortina. For at last we are in sight of the place which is to be our headquarters for the next week, and the wonderful drive is nearly at an end. Already within the compass of some fifteen English miles, i.e., from Tay to Cortina, we have seen six of the most famous Dolomites, three on the right bank and three on the left of the Boita. Four out of the six succeed ten thousand five hundred feet in height, while the Antileo is, I believe, distanced by only two of its rivals, namely the Marmolata and the Simon della Pala. The new and amazing forms of these colossal mountains, their strange coloring, the mystery of their formation, the singularity of their relative positions, each being so near its neighbor, yet in itself so distinct and isolated, the curious fact that they are all so nearly of one height, their very names so unlike the names of all other mountains, high-sounding, majestic, like relics of a prehistoric tongue, all these sights and facts in sudden combination confuse the imagination, and leave one bewildered at first by the variety and rapidity with which impression after impression has been charged upon the memory. It was therefore almost with a sense of relief that, weary with wonder and admiration, we found ourselves approaching the end of the day's journey. And now the road, which has been gradually descending for many miles, enters Cortina at about four hundred feet above the level of the Boita. First comes a scattered house or two, then a glimpse of the old church, the cemetery, and the public shooting-ground, in a hollow down near the river, then a long, irregular street of detached homesteads, hostelries, and humble shops, the new campanile, the pride of the village, two hundred and fifty feet in height, the post-house at the corner of a little piazza containing a public fountain, and finally, being the last house in the place, the Aquila Nera, a big, substantial albergo built in true Tyrolean fashion, like a colossal Noah's Ark, with rows upon rows of square windows with bright green shutters, and a huge roof with jutting eaves that looks as if it ought to take off like a lid to let out the animals inside. This, then, is our destination, and here we arrive towards close of day, rattling through the village and dashing up to the door with our driver's usual flourish, just as if the greys, instead of having done thirty-five miles to-day and thirty-four yesterday, were quite fresh, and only now out of the stable. The Ganinas, father and two sons, come out, not with much alacrity, to bid us welcome. The writer, however, mentions a name of might, the name of Francis Fox Tuckett, and behold, it acts upon the sullen trio like a talisman. 
their goodwill breaks forth in a ludicrous melody of Italian and German. How! The signora is a friend of Il Tucket, of the grand brave signore, whose achievements are famed throughout all these valleys? Gott in Himmel! Shall not the whole house be at her disposal? Echo! The Aquila Nera will justify the recommendation of Il Brave Tucket. Hereupon we alight. The old landlord puts out an enormous brown paw. We shake hands all around. The Kelnerian is summoned. The best rooms are assigned to us. The cooks, and there seem to be plenty of them in the huge gloomy kitchen, are set to work to prepare supper. A table is laid for us on the landing, which, as we find henceforth, is the place of honor in every inn throughout the Dolomite Tyrol, and all that the Aquila Nera contains is laid under contribution for our benefit. It is a thorough Tyrolean hostelry, by no means scrupulously clean, yet better provided and more spacious than one would have expected to find even in this, the most important village of the district. The bedrooms are immense, though scantily furnished. A few small mats of wolf and chamois skins are laid about here and there, but there is not such a thing as a carpet in the house. At the Dépendance, however, a new building on the opposite side of the road, charmingly decorated with external frescoes by one of the younger Gedinas who is an artist in Vienna, there are smaller rooms to be had, with good iron bedsteads and some few modern comforts. But we knew nothing of this till a day or two after, when we were glad to move into the more quiet house, though at the cost of having always to cross over for meals. In the way of food a kind of rough plenty reigns. Luxuries, of course, are out of the question, but of veal, sausage, eggs, cheese, and sauerkraut there is abundance. Drovers, guides, peasant farmers and travellers of all grades are eating, drinking, smoking all day long in the public rooms of which there are at least four in the lower floors of the big house. The kitchen chimney is smoking, the cooks are cooking, the taps are running from morn till dewy eve. We arrive at dewy eve, come in for an all-pervading atmosphere of tobacco and garlic, the accumulated incense of the day's sacrifices. With all this plenty, however, and all this custom, the wealthiest and most fastidious traveller must fare off the same meats and drinks as the poorest. The only foreign wine that Gedina keeps in his cellar is a rough Piedmontese vintage called Vino Barbera, which costs about two francs the bottle. If you do not like that, you must drink beer, or thin country wine, either red or white, or an inexpressibly nauseous spirit distilled from the root of a small plant nearly resembling the ordinary Plantago Major, or common English plantain. An inferior kind of Kirschwasser is, I believe, also to be had, but as for brandy, I doubt if there is one drop to be found in the whole country between Belluno and Brunec. For the rest, the inn is well enough, though one feels the want of a mistress in the establishment. Gedina Pere is a wealthy widower, and his three stalwart sons, all unmarried, live at home and attend, in a grim, unwilling way, to the housekeeping and stabling. Their horses, by the way, are first-rate, far too good for rough country work, while in the adjoining outbuildings are to be found a capital landau, a light chaise, some three or four caratini, and a side-saddle. How this article, in itself neither rare nor beautiful, came presently to occupy the foremost place in our affections and desires, how we fought for its possession against all comers, how we begged it, borrowed it, and finally stole it, will be seen hereafter. 
Meanwhile, arriving late and tired, we were glad to accept the big rooms in the big house, to put up with the atmosphere, to sup on the larding, to hear downstairs revellers going away long after we were in bed, and even to be wakened by the wild cry of the village watchman at intervals all through the dark hours of the night. It was not, perhaps, quite so agreeable to be aroused next morning at earliest dawn by a legion of carpenters in the street below flinging down loads of heavy planks, driving in posts by the wayside, hammering, shouting, and making noise enough to wake not only the living but the dead. For this, however, as for every discomfort, there was the compensation at hand, and our satisfaction was great on being told that the grand yearly sagro, or church festival, would be celebrated a few days hence, and that our noisy friends outside were already beginning to erect booths in preparation for the annual fair, which is held at the same time. It is the most important fair in all this part of the Austrian and Italian Tyrol, and is attended by an average concourse of from twelve to fifteen hundred peasants from every hill and valley for nearly thirty miles round about Cortina. End of section six.